All who had packets of powder threw them at the altar, and in the rosy dust and incense and clanging and shouts, infinite love, both of those words are capitalized, infinite love took upon itself the form of Sri Krishna and saved the world. All sorrow was annihilated, not only for Indians, but for foreigners, birds, caves, railways, and the stars. All became joy, all laughter. There had never been disease, nor doubt, misunderstanding, cruelty, fear. The love of uh, between humans and all things um, and nature is so great that God sees it. Hi, everyone. This time, Claire and I are chatting about E.M. Forster's novel, Passage to India. But first, the quote of the day comes from E.M. Forster himself. He wrote a book called Aspects of the Novel, and in chapter one, he says this. A mirror does not develop because a historical pageant passes in front of it. It only develops when it gets a fresh coat of quicksilver. In other words, when it acquires new sensitivities and the novel's success lies in its own sensitiveness, not in the success of its subject matter. I think this is a beautiful metaphor for something that I think I've said a few times on this podcast. There's nothing so small or mundane or everyday or domestic that doesn't belong in a poem or a novel. We see time and again great poets, great novelists, turning very simple everyday things into sublime literature. They do this because their mirrors are extremely polished, and reflective and pick up things that the rest of us just don't. So instead of chasing some grand idea or subject or theme or character or event, instead try honing your sensitivities to the everyday, what's already in front of you, what's overlooked, what seems small but is actually quite significant. This is the only subject matter that you really need. I think Forster's novel Passage to India is a great example of him turning the everyday or the mundane or the unexciting into something profound and life-altering. And for more on that and many other topics, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. What's new with you? Oh, we're starting. We're starting. Well, if I have to think this hard, I'm guessing (laughs) there's nothing new. You're still the author of The Field is White and What Was Left of the Stars. That hasn't changed. I'm not sure about it anymore. <laughs> it's been so long. We're extra excited today, aren't we, to talk about this book? I think, I mean, we've loved all the books we've talked about, but we both really loved this a lot. And it was our first time reading it. I think we were just extremely surprised by how great a book it is. Yeah. And I think all the other books we've read so far for this uh, have been books we've read before. So this was kind of nice and surprising too, right? Yeah, that's probably true. I kind of want to start off with a disclaimer. If you read about this book online, I mean, you don't have to get very far before you might get the impression that, you know, ignorant and racist and uh, immoral book complicit in, you know, the worst aspects of British colonialism, et cetera, et cetera, Orientalism. Mm. I mean, it's the opposite. It couldn't be more true. It's hard to imagine a more morally honest book. Mm-hmm. a book whose critique of British imperialism is more obvious. I mean, mm-hmm. you you just have to get to page two, really. I mean, immediately 
I mean, not, not page two specifically, but I'm just saying immediately in the book, you realize that this book is not taking sides. It paints British and Indian characters in negative and positive light. Yeah, it's holding up the same mirror to everybody. Right. The critique of empire exists on every single page of this book. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And even if it does have biases or prejudices or blind spots or this or that, I mean, of course it does, you know? It was written by a human. <laughs> yeah, and over, um, how old is this book? <laughs> I mean, 1924 it was published, so right. it's almost 100 years old. Right. It doesn't have to be a perfectly moral creed. It doesn't have to further a social or political cause. It is an immersive experience of a world, you know? And it happens to be, I think, one of the most compassionate, sensitive, morally refined, culturally accepting books around. Yeah. I hate starting this way, you know, because immediately I sound like I'm on the defensive. Yeah, but this book doesn't need defending. It's It does, though, because it's about a white, it's by a white British man about India, right? So automatically people think that you can't do that anymore. Right. Or that you never should have been allowed. He's um, putting himself in the shoes of women, of men, people of different races, cultures, backgrounds. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't need to be explained, does it? That is the heart of fiction, the moral heart of fiction, bridging the gaps between human minds and different individuals and different cultures and different times even. In fact, yeah. that's... I mean, what would that look like? I, just to imagine now, what would it look like if... You only write about people that are like you. Yeah, let's not let's not go down that dystopian nightmare. I know. I can't even imagine. It would actually be physically impossible to write that book. It does become kind of relevant thematically in the book because the the uh, the British people who live in India have these. They host these things called bridge parties, and they're not. They don't mean the game bridge. They are parties in which they try to bridge the, the gap between. Indians and Britons mm -hmm. between these two countries. So they invite all, you know, all kinds of different people, uh, British people, Indian people, Indian people of all different kinds of faiths. Mm -hmm. And they, they try to, you know, build a bridge. Right. I think fiction plays an extremely important role in that. We should do a little plot summary. So Ronnie Heslop or Hel Helslop or Heelslop. <laughs> Uh, is a British man who is a kind of magistrate in India. He's a kind of a, a judge adjudicator. He has to like pres preside over trials. He works and lives in India. He's about to become engaged to this woman named Adela Quested. His mother, whose name is Mrs. Moore, she has a different last name because she's remarried, comes to visit them in India. She's lived in England her whole life. And while she's there, she meets this man, this Muslim man named Mr. Aziz. Mr. Aziz has this friend named Mr. Fielding who is the principal of a school. He's also British. He's the principal of a school in India. And uh, those are pretty much the principal characters. There are other marginal characters as well that we'll talk about. And uh, important also is the fact that Adla comes out there with <clears throat> Mrs. Moore to see her potential future husband in, at work. Yeah. She, you know, she wants, she's seen him at play in her own words, but she wants to see him at work. Right. And she's never been to India before, right? Right. Nor has Mrs. Moore. Right. So one thing they do to pass the time is they take a trip to these caves called the Marabar Caves. Mm -hmm. And something happens in those caves. Something happens to Mrs. Moore, which we'll talk about at the end, I think, because it's both of our favorite part. Mm -hmm. Something happens to Adela, though. Mr. Aziz is escorting Adela through one of these caves, and suddenly he turns around and 
Adela's not there. To make a long story short, she eventually ends up accusing him of assault, some kind of sexual assault that never gets fully named or elaborated or defined in the book because Adela Quested's memory of it becomes, to her own admission, quite fuzzy. Right, because she becomes really sick afterwards. It's very hot outside the caves, and she seems to suffer from some type of heat stroke or, yeah, and she's sick for a while after, at least several days or possibly a few weeks. Right, and Mr. Aziz is arrested and put on trial. The way we're describing it would would lead one to conclude that the trial is takes up the most of this book and that the plot of this book is centered on this trial and um, whether or not Mr. Aziz is innocent. That's not at all true. I mean, it's actually one of the most least interesting parts. I know, that's what I kind of geared up for. When I looked up the book online before reading it, I was like, oh, sounds like it's going to be something To Kill a Mockingbird-esque. Right, but that's not what happens. The, no. the accusation doesn't happen until like at least page 100 and then it, it's resolved you know, like more or less 50 pages later. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, m most of the most important things in the novel happen around or after or before or outside of this trial. Yeah. Near the very beginning, Mr. Aziz is talking to some of his friends, and they're asking each other the question whether or not it's possible to be friends, whether or not it's possible for an Indian person to be friends with an English person. Mm -hmm. This is one of the thematic questions that the novel asks. Is there some fundamental and In insurmountable barrier between cultures and people. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the novel gives us an answer to that question? I think so. Never in words. Um, I mean, never in you know arguments or anything. But it shows through actions how people keep overcoming differences of uh, yeah race and culture just kind of automatically. You know, good people. Mm. It's not something they have to think about too much. These things just kind of happen naturally, which I like. It's not like there's these discussions between characters of, you know, we we should treat each other this way or that way or respect each other this way. Don't you feel that the friendships just kind of against their against their desires and maybe even better judgment, they just friendships keep happening. Well, there's a, I mean the novel, the first actual encounter that is dramatized in the novel is between Aziz and Mrs. Moore. Aziz is in a mosque. Yeah. And uh, he hears a noise behind him and turns around and sees her. Mm -hmm. Aziz is really annoyed to see her there at first because he's used to like English tourists or uh, other tourists like women um, to go in there and not bother taking off their shoes, either because they haven't, um, they just don't know that they should. They haven't really... They didn't have seemingly enough respect to kind of find out how they should be behaving at a place right. outside of their culture. So he assumes right. wrongly that she must be one of those people. She, she hasn't bothered taking off, her, taking off her shoes. And so he yells at her, and that's her first impression of him, <laughs> an angry man yelling at her. And he said, you have to take your shoes off. Don't you know this is a sacred place? You know, she's like, oh, but I did take off my shoes. <laughs> yeah, she's very, she's wonderfully, um, what would you say? She's like, oh, I, isn't, she kind of asserts that she's done the research. She's like, isn't that, I'm allowed now, right? Isn't that the. Yeah, but she doesn't do it in a, in a snarky way at all. No, she's no, still no, respectful. She's like, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I thought that if I took my shoes off, I can come in. Isn't that true? And so he, yeah, he has to take a kind of second look at the situation and realize that, yeah, she does actually care. 
Right, and he's immediately charmed by that. Um, and then she says this wonderful thing. Um, he says to her, you know, I'm just so used to seeing English women not do bother <laughs> taking their shoes off. And she's like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Isn't, you know, God is here. Mm, right. And I think that's it's exactly what she says. And yeah, with that, she just totally wins his heart. And then they go on to kind of like compare. They find out that they've both had a spouse that's died. They both have two sons. They both have two sons or, and a daughter. They both have three children. Wait, does he have a daughter? Yeah, they both have three children. Oh. So, and I don't think that they're the same age. I think she's much older than him. But, oh, yeah. So they're crossing generational gaps. They're crossing crossing religious gaps. They're crossing cultural gaps. But yet they're finding all of this common humanity, you know? They're I know, both, but don't you think- They're both very religious, and they both have this common commonality of family and grief and loss. I know, and it happens so naturally and quickly- it's like I said before, it's, it seems like almost an accident They that against their right. wishes almost. Well, I shouldn't say that, but you well, know, it, he clearly was angry at first. It's some kind of illustration that uh, we don't have to overthink this cultural divide question, you know, that fundamentally humans more or less are instantly human to each other. <laughs> I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but you know, yeah. the general rule is that humans want to be humane to each other. There, it could have gone wrong, wrong in so many different ways, and he, of course, could have. It could have been further confirmed to him that English women are disrespectful, don't care to know another culture. But um, I like how they both say, "Well, <laughs> I was angry. You you yelled at me, and I and I was frightened for a second. But basically, they say this is how the best friendships start." I thought was interesting. And so that's the kind of first dramatization of an answer to this question that is explicitly asked on the first few pages. Can an Indian be friends with an Englishman? Yeah. So we get one little encounter. Oh, it's proof that they can. And then the second little encounter is when Aziz meets Mr. Fielding, and they instantly dispense with all the chit-chat. And it's as, uh, as if they've been brothers, you know, the kind of their whole lives. Yeah. They're instantly cordial and, friend and, and more than cordial, intimate, friendly. Oh, yeah. Um, they, I know they skip that weird, awkward, like pretentious sizing oh, up phase. I know, or even that uh, thing that happens so often between people of different cultures. It's like you have to prove to each other for a while how much you respect the other person's culture and know how much you know about it. <laughs> right, they're just immediately at home yeah. with each other. So yeah. that's the second kind of answer. It's like, yo, here's another seemingly successful relationship. I love that part when Aziz actually shows Mr. Fielding a picture of his wife. Right. He says he only shows that to his most intimate friends. Yeah. He comes into Mr. Fielding's house and Mr. Fielding says, make yourself at home, which is a, an idiom in English. And Mr. Aziz takes this as the most wonderfully intimate invitation and take like actually takes him at his word. Mm. Lends him a collar stud, you know, for his collar oh, that he's, like that that he's lost and forgotten. So they're instantly kind of like swapping little bits of clothing. And- I know. And it's so painful after how Mrs. Moore's son, Ronnie, actually makes fun of Aziz. Later, Ron- he's like, oh, his collar's just standing straight up. Like he didn't. Ronnie is probably the most, well, not the most. There are other British official- officials there that are overtly racist. Uh, but Ronnie certainly has the, some of the most imperialistic ideas there's this, there's this conversation that he has with his mother, Mrs. Moore. He says to his mother, we, as in you know, Britain, we're not out here for the purpose of behaving pleasantly. 
Mrs. Moore says, what do you mean? And he says, what I say, we're out here to do justice and keep the peace. India isn't a drawing room. She responds and says, your sentiments are those of a god. Mm -hmm. She said quietly, but it was his manner rather than his sentiments that annoyed her. Trying to recover his temper, he said, India likes gods. And then she responds with this wonderful quip, an Englishman like posing as gods. I know. I, I mean, it's funny slash profound. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like only superficially funny. Yeah. And then on the very next page, that's when she says things to him like, um, she says this, the desire to behave pleasantly satisfies God. The sincere, if impotent desire wins his blessing. I think everyone fails, but there are so many kinds of failure. Goodwill and more goodwill and more goodwill. Mm-hmm. That's her kind of credo. Mm-hmm. She's kind of, you know, allows for blunders and failings and mistakes. And I always wonder why authors choose their choose yeah. their names, you know, Mrs. Moore. Yeah. More goodwill. That's her credo. More goodwill. Like we, this can be overcome despite all of the mistakes and errors and flaws in humanity. This can all be overcome with the right intentions, you know, if we're sincere in our... Right. And with that mindset, with sincerity and goodwill... These friendships, like between her and Aziz, they just happen naturally, despite those first initial misconceptions. Well, um, right? I mean, maybe. Uh, let's skip to the end. So Aziz and Mr. Fielding have this extremely immediate and intimate friendship. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Aziz is accused of this horrible crime in the cave. And then um, during the trial, I guess I will just say this happens in the middle of the book, so it's not a crazy spoiler. Miss Quested kind of recants the accusation and says, he didn't do anything to me. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Mr. Aziz is vindicated. And instead of celebrating with Mr. Aziz, Mr. Fielding goes to Miss Quested and, you know, because she kind of like leaves the courtroom. Yeah. I mean, he... He wants to go see if she's all right. And there's a whole bunch of angry people that are angry that she even made this accusation if it was false. And Yeah. There's some worry that she might be harmed. Mr. Aziz takes this very personally and feels that he's been betrayed by Mr. Fielding. Mm-hmm. who has sided with his quote-unquote enemy. That's how Mr. Aziz refers to Adela Quested. So they have this enormous falling out, Aziz and Fielding. And there's a, ru- a rupture in their friendship that lasts two years, and they don't answer each other's letters. Well, I don't think there is an enormous rupture per se. I think it's more like Aziz is kind of ignoring the letters, but um, obviously Mr. Fielding has no idea that Aziz is angry. Well, that, So there's not like a big that is falling true. out. I mean, Mr. Fielding does continually try to reach out. That is true. Yeah, he writes him tons of letters. He doesn't know, so it's not like they had a he, big fight where well, Aziz he, was like, how dare you? But from Mr. Aziz's point of view, it's quite a rupture. I, I think it's general anger. It's not necessarily all just against Fielding. I think he's just generally embittered. He keeps saying that after being in prison, um, you know, before the trial, he just... He grew really bitter and thought, I'm, j- I'm not going to try to <laughs> have any kind of relationships with, yeah, with uh, I mean, that's any I'm, Englishman. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, their friendship is over. Yeah. But that's, yeah, it's not just personally against feeling, but like all foreigners <laughs> seemingly with Mrs. Moore. Right. Mr. Fielding even says that, I don't know why you like, why you love her so much. She hasn't really done anything for you. You've met her about three times. Um, she didn't stay and like visit you in prison. She didn't try to help you in court. Right. But yeah, Aziz has from the the very beginning had turned her into a type of symbol for 
I don't know, love, tolerance, it's hard open-mindedness. To say. Yeah, it is hard to say, but she clearly does something for his general optimism. Right. And belief in humanity. But their relationship is over. Yeah. Their relationship ends. His relationship with Fielding ends. So the, I'm just, yeah. these two initial encounters that the novel starts with both dissolve by the time the novel is over. Yeah. So what do you think? Does this book su- suggest that deeply compassionate and sincere cross-cultural friendships are possible? I think it absolutely confirms that they are possible. Um even if it seems that its characters don't even believe that. But I think the book shows us over and over again how these friendships just naturally keep occurring. But at the very end, I mean, let's describe the very last scene. So Fielding and Aziz are reunited. He comes back. There's this misunderstanding about who exactly he's married. For a while, Aziz thinks he's married Adela Quested, which would make him really angry. Yeah. But he hasn't. He's actually married Mrs. Moore's, Mrs. Moore's daughter. So Aziz realizes he doesn't have as much of a reason to be mad as he thought he did, but they still can't heal the wound entirely. Yeah. And should we read the very last bit? I think we should, shouldn't we? Yeah. Aziz turns to Fielding and says this, Down with the English, anyhow, that's certain. Clear out, you fellows, double quick, I say. We may hate one another, but we hate you most. If I don't make you go, Ahmed will, Karim will. If it's 5,500 years, we shall get rid of you. Yes, we shall drive every blasted Englishman into the sea. And then he rode against him furiously. And then he concluded, half kissing him, you and I shall be friends. Why can't we be friends now, said the other, holding him affectionately. It's what I want. It's what you want. They're riding in a carriage together. And this is the last paragraph. But the horses didn't want it. They swerved apart. The earth didn't want it, sending up rocks through which riders must pass single file. The temples, the tank, the jail, the palace, the birds, the carrion, the guesthouse that came into view as they issued from the gap and saw Mao beneath. They didn't want it. They said in their hundred voices, no, not yet. And the sky said, no, not there. I honestly read that as... The character's interpretation, all of those no's um, or not yet, I think that's the characters projecting their feelings onto their surroundings. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm picturing them looking out the window and being like, this is just impossible. At this point in time, at this point in history, it's just not possible. But um, I think the book itself, and with the mirrors it holds up to all the different people, um, argues and clearly shows that these friendships are possible, whether the characters fully believe it or not. I mean, Assis says a lot of crazy stuff, and you're like, oh, (laughs) I wonder what a feeling's response is going to be to that. But then it's always like playful kind of words. The words are so often meaningless in these dialogues, right? Did you get that feeling? I mean, he says, uh, you know, I'm going to drive you all out. If not me, then these and the... Yeah, I mean, the tone might be hard to capture, but I think he's clearly being playful. I mean, they're hugging. This is like in a moment where they're hugging each other and saying goodbye. Exactly. I think all the actions of the book clearly show that cross-cultural friendships are possible. There are a thousand micro-actions that do show that, but then why don't these friendships, why doesn't the book end with permanent lasting friendships? I mean, this is true for so many friendships. Right. It doesn't have to be cross-cultural. 
you know, how often have you said goodbye to a person you'll know you'll never see again because your lives are, don't have much in common. You live right. in a different place, different continent, um, different city, you know. There's just so many circumstances that separate people. And there can be so many reasons. I mean, you know, siblings often end up hating each other and they couldn't be right. more culturally similar, right? It, so it, exactly. it's not necessarily culture that detonates mm-hmm. detonates these friendships. Yeah, and I don't know if this is worth bringing up. I always, I always wonder, like, I like reading books without knowing anything sometimes about the author, without knowing anything about the background of the book itself just to see how it stands up on his own. Um, but I have to say it was very interesting to read about Ian e. Forster and his relationship with this young Indian man um, that the book is dedicated to. Mm-hmm. And it also did make me read the ending quite differently. He basically traveled to India, Ian e. Forster, to visit this young man. And he was like deeply in love with him, apparently. Was Ian e. Forster openly gay? I mean, in I the twenties, so. one couldn't. Re- I mean, one could kind of, kind of be, but he was only um, honest about it to a very few intimate I see. friends. So I think this is something that came out much later. Like even in his private journals, he doesn't allude to it. That oh, he was really? so restrained. Yeah. So, but he did apparently confess his love to this man, maybe uh, several occasions. But he um, he did. Syed, I think his name is, was not homosexual. So um, they said goodbye to each other th- the day before. Um, yeah, the day before he visited these caves. Yeah. Yeah, that's not irrelevant. Sure. He okay. visited these caves that the, the, the Marabar caves that we'll get to now are based on. Yeah, and I, I really feel like when you know kind of some of that backstory, it really ma- it changes kind of the book, especially the ending, um, the way these two friends... Aziz and Fielding say goodbye to each other. You know how um, everything says not yet. I can't help but wonder (laughs) if this is also a type of lamentation, not being able to openly live your life. There is a kind of slight sliver, tiny grain of hopefulness, you know, not yet. Right. It's not, no, never, no, never could these cultures befriend each other. Or if there is this second reading, I don't think that Mr. Fielding and Aziz are gay. No. But you could be right that there could be a kind of, a, not allegorical, but kind of parallel mm-hmm. way to read this book. And yeah. that, the, that the earth is affirming, yeah, not yet, but not, not ever. Right. You know, there will one day be a time and place where, you know, you wouldn't have to hide your sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I read Fielding and Aziz's friendship as extremely intimate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminded me of, I told you earlier, Hamlet and Horatio or Achilles and Patroclus. Mm-hmm. I mean, Achilles and Patroclus, I mean, even there, there have been commentaries on whether or not that there, there's a homosexual element to that relationship. But yeah. so it's not without historic or cultural or literary precedent, this kind of mm-hmm. deep male bond. And Shakespearean comedies are full of, you know, male pairs who get mad at each other because one of them falls in love and can't hang out anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, let's talk about these caves. I want to read the first paragraph of the book. These caves are so cool. I've tried to write about caves myself, and <laughs> I feel like my uh, the symbolism that I try to evoke is always just not quite mysterious enough or sentimental. or Anyway, yeah, he, so I was quite jealous of the way he used these caves. They're just, he just nails it. I mean... It, to me, this is the heart of the book. It's not the friendship between Aziz and Fielding. It's not this 
trial or the accusation. It's what happens in these caves to Mrs. Moore. Yes. So this is how the very this is the very first paragraph of the novel. This is how it starts. I think it's relevant. It's kind of set the scene. Chapter one. Except for the Marabar caves, and they are twenty miles off, the city of Chandrapur presents nothing extraordinary. Edged rather than washed by the river Ganges, it trails for a couple of miles along the bank, scarcely distinguishable from the rubbish it deposits so freely. There are no bathing steps on the riverfront, as the Ganges happens not to be holy here. <laughs> it's a wonderfully sly. Again, I think Forrester is a great, he's kind of like a non, a non-respecter of persons when it comes to critique. He'll critique theists, he'll critique atheists. He'll critique Indians, he'll critique Britons, mm-hmm. he'll critique Islam, Hinduism, Christianity. Oh, this book would be absolutely you know? unbearable if he celebrated all of these cultures. No, it's only. like he, he, he's willing to call it. I, I, but he does it in a way that's playful, yeah. which I think is important and we'll yes. get to in a minute. So there are no bathing steps on the riverfront as the Ganges happens not to be holy here. Indeed, there is no riverfront. The bazaars shut out the wide and shifting panorama of the stream. The streets are mean, the temples ineffective, and though a few fine houses exist, they are hidden away in gardens or down alleys whose filth deters all but the invited guests. Chandrapur was never large or beautiful, but 200 years ago it lay on the road between Upper India, then Imperial, and the sea, and the fine houses date from that period. The zest for decoration stopped in the 18th century, nor was it ever democratic. There is no painting and scarcely any carving in the bazaars. The very wood seems made of mud, the inhabitants of mud moving. So abased, so monotonous is everything that meets the eye, that when the Ganges comes down it might be expected to wash the excrescence back into the soil. Houses do fall, people are drowned and left rotting, but the general outline of the town persists, swelling here, shrinking there, like some low but indestructible form of life. I find this very evocative and symbolic, not symbolically, and uh, thematically resonant because he paints a picture of this place in India that it isn't a grand place, it isn't a holy place, it isn't a special place, it's not a historically important place. Mm. It's just one of those nameless places that exist in every country in every time. You know, I know. Wouldn't the temptation have been great if you choose to write this book to choose like a really right, like the most sacred city. temple, or I know, just the most beautiful architecture, and like, but it's just like mud, everything. But I so <laughs> the reason why I wanted to start with this is because he he paints this picture of a, of a specific place in India that is kind of monotonous and formless. Right, those are the words that he uses. Mm-hmm. That the people are kind of indistinguishable from the land, even kind of elementally. They're kind of fused together, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is totally unremarkable. Um, everything is kind of the same, mm-hmm. except for the caves. That's why they're the only kind of quote-unquote local tourist attraction. That's why to kill a day, that's what you go do. You go I see know. these caves. But I love how even the people that suggest to Mrs. Moore and Miss Quested like, oh, you have to see the caves. You haven't seen the caves yet. And then they, they're they like, actually, I've never seen them either. <laughs> like, what? what's, you know, there's sculptures there? No, there's just nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing there. <laughs> and when they get there, they enter them, and it's just like a big hollow room. And then they stare at it for a while, then they turn around and leave. And there's nothing. These aren't particularly big caves. Mm-hmm. They're not beautiful in any way. So even, even the slightly remarkable thing about Chandrapur is more or less unremarkable. Yeah. But isn't that so often just reality? You travel and you're like, oh, yeah, this is the same. Like, 
this is not that remarkable. Like my siblings all went on this huge vacation together without me <laughs> to China. And my sister, one of my sisters said it was actually really weird because it was so similar to everything right. I know. I was expecting it to completely change my worldview. So. so they go into these caves and, some, and Mrs. Moore, she's an old British woman, and something happens to her down there. And I guess I'll read a few paragraphs. I mean, I don't want to read too much reading, but it kind of happens over the course of like several important paragraphs. Uh, a Marabar cave had been horrid as far as Mrs. Moore was concerned, for she had nearly fainted in it and had some difficulty in preventing herself from saying so as soon as she got into the air again. It was natural enough. She had always suffered from faintness, and the cave had become too full because all their retinue followed them. Crammed with villagers and servants, the circular chamber began to smell. She lost Aziz and Adela in the dark, didn't know who touched her, couldn't breathe, and some vile naked thing struck her face and settled on her mouth like a pad. She tried to regain the entrance tunnel, but an influx of villagers swept her back. She hit her head. For an instant she went mad, hitting and gasping like a fanatic. For not only did the crush and stench alarm her, there was also a terrifying echo. Professor Godbully, and Godbully is uh, a Hindu Brahmin who we'll talk about in a minute. Professor Godbully had never mentioned an echo. It never impressed him, perhaps. There are some exquisite echoes in India. There is the whisper round the dome at Bijapur. There are the long, solid sentences that voyage through the air at Mandu and return unbroken to their creator. The echo in a Marabar cave is not like these. It is entirely devoid of distinction. Whatever is said, the same monotonous noise replies and quivers up and down the walls until it is absorbed into the roof. Boom is the sound as far as the human alphabet can express it, or boom or uboom. Utterly dull. Hope, politeness, the blowing of a nose, the squeak of a boot, all produce boom. Even the striking of a match starts a little worm coiling, which is too small to complete a circle but is entirely watchful. And if several people talk at once, an overlapping, hollowing noise begins. Echoes generate echoes, and the cave is snuffed with a snake composed of small snakes, which writhe independently. It's a horrible last image. This is kind of like metaphor of these echoes inside of echoes, a pregnant snake full of all these little writhing snakes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's not just claustrophobia or confusion in the dark. We learn later that the strange fleshy pad that hits her on the face is a baby. Someone's holding this kind of half-naked baby. And in this kind of crowded bustle, part of the baby kind of like hits her in the face. I know, that's a really strange uh, detail. The first time I read that, I was like, ew. Was it is horrifying. But, you know, if you're in a dark cave and you don't know what this warm piece of thing is hitting you in the face, then, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel horrifying. Yeah. I'll read a little bit more. Nothing evil had been in the cave, but she had not enjoyed herself. No, she had not enjoyed herself. And she decided not to visit a second one. Then a bit later, the narrator says this. No, she did not wish to repeat that experience. The more she thought over it, the more disagreeable and frightening it became. She minded it much more now than at the time. The crush and the smell she could forget, but the echo began in some indescribable way to undermine her hold on life. Coming in a moment when she chanced to be fatigued, it had managed to murmur, quote, Pathos, piety, courage, they exist, but are identical. And so is filth. Everything exists. Nothing has value. Unquote. These are kind of the words that she ascribes to this echo. 
The narrator continues, If one had spoken vileness in that place or quoted lofty poetry, the comment would have been the same. Uboom. If one had spoken with the tongues of angels and pleaded for all the unhappiness and misunderstanding in the world, past, present, and to come, for all the misery men must undergo whatever their opinion and position, and however much they dodge or bluff, it would amount to the same. The serpent would descend and return to the ceiling. Later, the narrator says, but suddenly at the edge of her mind, religion appeared, poor little talkative Christianity. And she knew that all its divine words from let there be light to it is finished only amounted to boom. Then she was terrified over an area larger than usual. The universe, never comprehensible to her intellect, offered no repose to her soul. The mood of the last two months took definite form at last, and she realized that she didn't want to write to her children, didn't want to communicate with anyone, not even with God. She sat motionless with horror, and when old Mahmoud Latif came to her, thought he would notice a difference. For a time she thought, I am going to be ill. To comfort herself, then she surrendered to the vision. She lost all interest, even in Aziz, and the affectionate and sincere words that she had spoken to him seemed no longer hers, but the heirs. How do you respond to this? Oh yeah, that's definitely a scene out of my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> out of my existential nightmares. I don't want to add, maybe I shouldn't be asking you for a paraphrase because something mm. like this has to be experienced. And mm. I mean, Ian Forrester is putting the best words that one could ever put to this experience. But what exactly is this experience? Well, it's like you said, it can't be paraphrased, but it evokes many things. And one thing that it evokes for me is the kind of existential crisis that I think hits many people when they travel. Because you're out of your comfort zone, you're out to hopefully experience something new, something positive, something that's, you know, somehow improves your life or affirms life for you. I've had a uh, similar experience. It's never that intense, never that extreme. Of course, um, Mrs. Moore is at the end of her life. And so this existential crisis is probably, you know, augmented much more. To, to that degree, because she right. knows that she she probably doesn't have much time left in her life. Right. Yeah, I've I've had similar experiences where I've had this idea like, oh, here, here I am on vacation, supposed to you know shop for memories and, and uh, life affirming experiences, um, and I feel either nothing or I feel that nothing matters. Right. That the, if there are differences, they don't matter. And that all things are the same, like piety, purity, filth, they're all the same. They all sound like boom. <laughs> right. That is a frightening, very frightening um, kind of it's, black hole to fall into. I mean, I remember my first few days in Russia. I mean, I think when culture shock hits you the strongest, what happens isn't... This is so different. Yeah, that's not really... I mean, for me, that wasn't, I mean, it, everything was different, but there's something much deeper that's terrifying. And the deeper thing is it's different. And these, here are millions of people that have always been living on the other side of the world and mm. suffering, desiring, hoping, wishing, yeah. dying, being born. And I was ignorant to all of it. Yeah. So if I'm ignorant to them, they're ignorant about me. Oh, yeah. And the point. cosmos, the cosmos must be ignorant to all of us. Hmm. You know, that's, that's what. Yeah, that's when, a good way to. When she 
That's why I think when the narrator says, then she was terrified over an area larger than usual, the universe, right? It's like suddenly your fears become cosmic. Yeah. And you realize, oh my goodness, I'm I'm as meaningless to the stars as these people were to me before I knew that they existed. Yeah. So there's there wait, there is there nothing overseeing all of this? Yeah. Are we all just, you know, being born and dying like an echo in a cave? Mm. It's horrifying. You know, so it's not claustrophobia what she experiences there. It's not it's not just an exposure to a foreign because as we both emphasized, she enters this mosque eager and curious about other cultures. Oh yeah, you couldn't really see more open-minded than her. But it's it's the exposure to like, oh, uh, the universe is indifferent to us and the mm. universe is indifferent to me specifically. Mm. And this and what's the immediate effect? She doesn't she suddenly doesn't care at all anymore about Aziz. She doesn't feel like writing her own children, which is insane. She doesn't care about her own family. And she, she um, feels, yeah, she feels cut off from everyone. Later in the book, so Miss Quested falls horribly ill and is suffering, obviously, emotionally and psychologically as well, and goes to Mrs. Moore for comfort. Yeah. And Mrs. Moore, how does she react? like well she's very cold she's just in her own dark place still and says oh i i can't deal with this anymore you know she it's she's tired of these uh young people and their relationship problems and of love in general like she it's not just that these are petty problems because they're obviously not i mean adele Adela obviously experienced something that really frightened her and she was very sick mm. mrs moore is clearly not in her right mind because prior to this cave experience, she would have right. been acted very differently. But it's her depression. Like, I feel like she just fell into a deep hole of depression in which she's just not able to see anyone outside of her own suffering or with any different lens than nothing matters. Ad Adela comes to her and says, this is what Adela says. I am counting on you to help me through. It is such a blessing to be with you again. Mm. Everyone else is a stranger. And then the narrator says, but Mrs. Moore showed no inclination to be helpful. Yeah. A sort of resentment emanated from her. She seemed to say, am I to be bothered forever? Her Christian tenderness had gone or had developed into a hardness, a just irritation against the human race. Wow. And then so they try to like get her attention or provoke her interest in their conversation. And the only thing that does it is that Adela mentions this echo that Adela also keeps hearing. So Adela says, there is this echo that I keep hearing. Oh, what of the echo? Asked Mrs. Moore, paying attention to her for the first time. I can't get rid of it. And then Mrs. Moore says, I don't suppose you ever will. Adela says, Mrs. Moore, what is this echo? Mrs. Moore says, don't you know? No, what is it? Oh, do say, I felt you would be able to explain it. This will comfort me so. Mrs. Moore says, if you don't know, you don't know. I can't tell you. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and then what happens to poor Mrs. Moore? This is like the bleakest. It's like so utterly depressing. She says, oh, yeah, Aziz is not guilty. He didn't do it. <laughs> she knows all the time, but yeah. doesn't care that he's not guilty. Doesn't care that he's being falsely accused. Which makes you further suspect that she must be in the worst depression of her life. Because, yeah, she clearly cared so much about Aziz before. Anyway, um... Her son sends her away. He's like, "Oh, you you gotta you gotta go back home <laughs> before you mess with uh, you know 
the does trial he, results. Does he send her away? Does, I can't oh, he remember. Does. does she want to go? She wants to go, but he definitely speeds yeah. up the process. He doesn't. She doesn't fight, though. I mean, she she can. No, no, she's she happy wants to, to leave. Yeah, which is another cool thing about the book. There's no villain. Like Ronnie is not evil at all. He, right. He's not a bad son per se. He does feel bad that he sent his mom home without you know trying to be more loving about it. Though I, I, I kind of did get the sense that at least there were definitely a lot of petty slash uh, borderline evil <laughs> characters, um, some of the Burtons and Turtons. <laughs> well, they're, I mean, they're, they are racist. Their racism is made explicit and through the narrator kind of gently satirized or mocked. You know, like yeah. we know that we're, we know who's racist and we know that they're buffoons, more or less buffoons. Right. I do think it's a lot more blurry when it comes to Ronnie. I don't think he likes the part... I don't think he likes what he's become in India. Right. He doesn't. He's he's nervous about Adla visiting because he's like, oh, she's gonna. She might not like what she sees. Right. You know, because he himself knows that he's changed. And but anyway, Mrs. Moore leaves and doesn't even make it home because on the ship. Oh yeah, she dies on the home. She dies at sea and is buried at sea. She dies alone. I mean, she has some mild acquaintances on this ship, but she's all alone on the ship, dies, and is buried at sea. Which is like a blow that I could barely stand as a reader. I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I loved it as a kind of aesthetic choice, and it made the novel 10 times greater, but extremely hard to bear. This poor woman who dies all alone in this deep black hole, totally hopeless. I know, and then her body is drowned in another type of abyss, you know, like to me, the ocean is just this really scary. No, that's right. Forrester makes that choice. Yeah, he makes that choice strategically. She doesn't get a permanent resting place. So the fate of her body mimics the fate of her soul, you know, or, or, or her psyche, I should say, Yeah. at the end of the book, you know, so she's totally dissolved into the void. Foundationless. This is why I wanted to start by reading that first paragraph, because there is some thematic strand throughout this book of form versus formlessness, right? Mm. Um, Chandrapur is kind of this unformed, formless mass, this muddled mass. Mm. What Mrs. Moore sees in the cave is that everything is actually nothing. All of the belief systems she had kind of dissolve. Let there be light to it is finished is only boom. Filth and poetry are the same. It's all one, right? This Import- is, you were saying this earlier. Yeah, the, the thing that makes them nothing is their uniformity. Suddenly, all things are the same and equal and equally nothing. The caves are an interesting symbol to put in the middle, right into the middle, literally, of mm-hmm. this story that's about cultural differences. Seemingly, uh, uniformity would be the solution, Right to cultural differences, but it's at, with the symbol of the cave and how all things become the same and therefore nothing for Mrs. Moore. It's the it's the absence of differences that is the true nightmare. I think Forster is a genius because he everything is nuanced with him. Everything is nuanced. Nothing is black or white. Yeah. Even this idea of formlessness or nothingness has, I think, in other parts of the novel, a positive incarnation. Mm. I mean, I think that you've hit on one of its positive incarnations, like cultural. I mean, we are all homo sapiens. Mm. So these superficial seeming differences should dissolve and can dissolve. And in many areas of the novel, they do dissolve. Some dissolution is good. 
a leading question because I think the answer is no. But for a while, I thought the answer was yes. Is this a nihilistic book? I mean, is there a counter? I kept asking myself, like, is there a counter argument to the fate of Mrs. Moore? What does the novel have to suggest in opposition to the fate of Mrs. Moore? That there is something positive in the world, that meaning can be found, that there isn't just particles in a void and nothing matters, that there is a difference between poetry and filth. I think it's got to be Godbully. Yeah, I was going to go towards the end too there, and also with Mrs. Moore's son, Ronnie. Okay, what about him? So when at the end of the book, um, Fielding returns to visit, and he brings his wife, which is Mrs. Moore's daughter, and he brings along um, Mrs. Moore's son, Ronnie, and Aziz happens to run into him. This is not, are you sure his name is Ronnie? This is not Ronnie. Oh, so sorry. Is it Ralph? Yeah, they're similar names. It's not Ronnie Helslop. No, 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 not Helslop. (laughs) No, Ralph, sorry. Mrs. Moore's son. Mrs. Moore's other son. Ralph, yes. Yes, Aziz meets him kind of by chance. And it's interesting because it's kind of very similar to the first time um, Aziz meets Mrs. Moore. His first Mm. sort of reaction is rude. You can't be in here without your shoes on. And, you know, Ronnie, uh, Ralph says, your hands are unkind. He's the poor idiot. <laughs> Ralph has been stung by all these bees. Yeah. And Aziz is a doctor, so he says, okay, fine, let me look. And just is being quite rude to him. Yeah. And Ralph says, your hands are unkind. He's like, what is, you know, <laughs> who cares about my hands? <laughs> you know, I'm not being... uh I'm not hurting you. And he's like, no, but I could tell, you know, he, he could basically tell that he doesn't like him mm-hmm. and that there's resentment. So there's a similar kind of um, gentleness and well, I don't know what to call it, but a certain sensitivity well, that Ralph has that's similar to Mrs. Morris. Mrs. It's the goodwill. You know, Ralph has that goodwill, yeah. I think, you know, like is willing to give Aziz another chance to be kind and. And to truly see Aziz as a human. Right. And because he, Ralph, is so sensitive to to other people and and truly sees them, he also notices when Aziz, when his attitude kind of changes and becomes more friendly. He notices it right away. Right. So um, his hand was taken, and then he remembered how detestable he had been. Aziz had remembered how detestable he had been and said gently, Don't you think me unkind anymore? Ralph says, No. How can you tell, you strange fellow? Not difficult. The one thing I always know. Can you always tell whether a stranger is your friend? And Ralph says, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like totally innocent, benevolent, yeah, goodwill. Yeah. Disarms Aziz, and they're, they're kind of friends despite this initial speed bump. Yeah, and even though for pages and pages before this moment, Aziz had, you know, had made all these resolutions to never, ever become friends with an English person again and to just keep to his own culture, or at least to his right. fellow Indians. Um, well, fellow Muslims, I mean, we should point out that Aziz looks at the Hindus with as as, as much as, of an outsider as any English person. Yes, that's a very interesting I mean, Aziz in looks book. at the Hindus and says, like, I have no idea who these people are, what they believe. Yep. They're totally foreign to him. And and he doesn't really, mm-hmm. he thinks that their music is ugly. He yep. thinks that their, their customs are strange, their rituals confusing and opaque. Yeah. So even inside of India, I think Forster 
you know, he doesn't paint India with a single brush. I mean, there are yeah. all kinds of different Indias and Indians and... Oh, yeah, there's a there's something even about that, that there's no general Indian. Oh, there's, there's one point, a part in the book where Mr. Daz comes to see Aziz. He needs two remedies, one for shingles, and he needs a poem for his brother-in-law's newly... Uh, new monthly magazine. Anyway, um, and at some point they talk about, let's see. Oh, yeah. So Mr. Daz says, um, the poem is not for Hindus, but Indians generally. And as he says, there's no such person in existence as the general Indian. And I thought that was obviously very meaningful in this book. It's true in every country. And there's no such thing as a general human. Right. Except, I mean, okay, so maybe yes, this, <laughs> this is a good transition into God bully because I think your answer, your so my my initial question a while ago was, does this book have a counter argument against poor Mrs. Moore's nihilistic fate? Yeah, I mean, despite Aziz's bitterness, how he's been treated by the British, how he has treated the British, mm-hmm. a human connection just cannot help but continuously be formed. Friendships will thrive friendship will out you know what i mean against your better judgment <laughs> i know despite these despite these obstacles yeah friendship will out yeah so god bully is this hindu brahmin and he says um there's this one moment when he and fielding are talking and they start talking about you know metaphysical stuff and mr fielding says to him you're preaching that evil and good are the same and god bully says oh no excuse me once again good and evil are different as their names imply But in my own humble opinion, they are both of them aspects of my Lord. He is present in the one, absent in the other, and the difference between presence and absence is great, as great as my feeble mind can grasp. Yet absence implies presence. Absence is not non-existence, and we are therefore entitled to repeat, come, 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 come. Hmm. So, you know, why do I like that? First of all, I love that this echo in the cave is kind of redeemed in this Hindu assertion that we live in a world of absence. We are not literally in the presence of our God, but this absence implies a presence. And maybe emptiness implies a fullness. Or dissolution implies intimacy, you know? Interesting. Um, So this echo, come, 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 is the kind of positive version of the boom in the cave. Mm -hmm. So there is a negative version of dissolution that Mrs. Moore suffered, right? Like nothing means anything. The universe is a dark expanse. And the poor lady didn't have enough time left in her life to come out the other side. She didn't have enough time to learn to see this. I mean, that's not a false realization. The thing about the reason why that's such a powerful realization and why nihilism is so dangerous is because it's not refutable yeah (laughs) you know i mean that's a very powerful true way of looking at the world i mean we all die the universe is vast Mm. suffering is ignored and goes on redeemed you know Mm. what i mean Mm. you can't argue that that's not true but there's another way of looking at it and this is the god bully way like absence implies presence so the echo gets redeemed And then the very last section of the book, the very last part of the book is called Temple. And this is how it starts. Some hundreds of miles westward of the Marabar Hills, and two years later in time, Professor Narayan Godbully stands in the presence of God. 
God is not yet born. That will occur at midnight. They're celebrating this Hindu festival, the birth of Krishna. Um, But he has also been born centuries ago, nor can he ever be born because he is the Lord of the universe who transcends human processes. He is, was not, is not, was. And then we get this wonderful bit. He kind of has this vision. He's performing this ritual. There's lots of song and dance. And uh, he kind of has this vision of Mrs. Moore. At the very beginning of the novel, Mrs. Moore was going to hang her something up, a hat or an umbrella on this peg. And there was a wasp on the peg. Do you remember this? She saw this wasp on a peg. And then here at the very end of the novel, Godbully starts to see something in this kind of rapturous moment. Um, images evoked more definite, and the singers, the singers' expressions became fatuous and languid. They loved all men, the whole universe, and scraps of their past. Tiny splinters of detail emerged for a moment to melt into the universal warmth. So again, this kind of oneness of universal warmth. Hmm. And in this universal warmth, he starts to see little details. Thus Godbully, though she was not important to him, remembered an old woman he had met in Chandrapur. Chance brought her into his mind while it was in this heated state. He did not select her. She happened to occur among the throng of soliciting images, a tiny splinter, and he impelled her by his spiritual force to that place where the completeness can be found. Completeness, not reconstruction. It's wonderful, too. So he sees this oneness as a kind of image of completeness, not disillusion. Completeness, not resurrection. His senses grew thinner. He remembered a wasp, seen he forgot where, perhaps on a stone. He loved the wasp equally. He impelled it likewise. He was imitating God. So even kind of time becomes formless. Mrs. Moore and this wasp kind of come back to him in this weird kind of telekinetic, I don't know how to describe this, you know? Hmm, Time ceases to exist. He sees something that happened in the past. Mrs. Moore floating lifeless in the ocean is a sort of um, reunion with everything formless for her. So that could be like a kind of uh, redemption there, a redemptive image. She dissolves back into a universal oneness, a kind of infinity. Oh, I like that. This is what Godbully says, or this is what the narrator says about this Hindu festival. All who had packets of powder threw them at the altar, and in the rosy dust and incense and clanging and shouts, infinite love... Both of those words are capitalized. Infinite love took upon itself the form of Sri Krishna and saved the world. All sorrow was annihilated, not only for Indians, but for foreigners, birds, caves, railways, and the stars. All became joy, all laughter. There had never been disease, nor doubt, misunderstanding, cruelty, fear. Mm. I mean... Beautiful. I love that he includes the caves there. Yeah, for animate objects, inanimate objects, Indians, Britons. I mean, it's like infinite love, you know. Um, Infinite love took upon itself the form of Sri Krishna and saved the world. So how do you think that contrasts with Mrs. Moore's um, nightmare of oneness? Well, the line that comes to my mind is... The line from Adonais by Percy Bysshe Shelley, right? The one remains, the many change and pass. So there are many individual objects that change and pass, mm-hmm. but the oneness that they comprise will always remain. Mm. And there's something consoling about that. Mm. And it remains for Indians, for foreigners, for birds, for caves, for railways, and the stars. You know, it's all in there. Nothing is actually lost. It's all there. The various forms might change, you know. Infinite love took upon itself the form of Sri Krishna and saved the world. 
There's these inscriptions on this uh, altar or temple, and some of them are in uh, English. And one of them says, God, see, love, S-I, God, see, love. So there was a slip of, uh, Forrester calls this the slip of the draftsman who was writing these words, mm-hmm. mixed up these two letters, God, see, love, which is a kind of like hilarious little detail, right? Mm-hmm. A typo, an error, a foible. Mrs. Moore says at the beginning to Ronnie, God is love, and Ronnie kind of scoffs at this piety. Mm-hmm. So here we have this same sentiment being returned to at the end of the book, but flipped in a kind of comic way. Right, but also in a powerful way. The love of uh, between humans and all things um, and nature is so great that God sees it. Yeah, I mean, there must be some kind of pun at work there. The S-I-C, I think you're totally right, that seeing love requires seeing or something. Mm. But also just as a typo, like piety can't be taken too seriously. Right. <laughs> you know, I think that's really important. I know, it's it's a novel that's about how um, silly words are. Well, how silly humans are, and how silly serious things are. Mm-hmm. This is the last thing I'll read. Poor, talkative Christianity. Yeah. If, if only Mrs. Moore had lived long enough to see, pun intended, mm. to see that she could have laughed at her suffering, laugh, yeah. la- mocked her own nihilistic crisis. I know, it's so sad because you can just tell that she would have come out of it if she she'd only have. had more time. So these Hindus are having this festival, and this is what the narrator says, all laughed exultantly at discovering that the divine sense of humor coincided with their own. God, see, love. There is fun in heaven. <laughs> God can play practical jokes upon himself, draw chairs away from beneath his own posteriors, <laughs> set his own turbans on fire, and steal his own petticoats when he bathes. By sacrificing good taste, this worship achieved what Christianity had shirked, the, the inclusion of merriment. Mm. All spirit as well as all matter must participate in salvation, and if practical jokes are banned, the circle is incomplete. Mm. I just totally loved that, you know, like... What is one cure for nihilism? Jokes. You know, laugh at yourself. <laughs> what is one cure for pompous piety? Laugh at your, laugh at your faith. Make mm. jokes about it. Belief that can't laugh at itself isn't real belief. It's some kind of poisonous dogma or something. I mean, I think Ralph and Godbully, that kind of Krishna vision, are one is a localized but no less potent remedy against nihilism the other is more cosmic and more grand do you walk away from this book feeling that your life has been affirmed that you have more reason to live uh yeah definitely why especially because of that um the way it teaches the book teaches us explicitly to laugh at ourselves to let to allow ourselves to see the silliness in so many of our problems right not to take ourselves too seriously i mean that's exactly what nihilism is, right? You take everything too seriously. Ironically, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> ironically, right? Exactly. And just um, just how you know, all our differences, cultural, religious, racial, they're... The best way to transcend them is to not take them too seriously. Yeah. Joke about them. See them, don't ignore them, don't judge people based on them, but yeah... Um, don't take them too seriously. <laughs> Merriment. I think that's the best word. Merriment. Yeah.
That's it for now. More sporadic holiday episodes will be coming don't know when. In the meantime, take care, keep reading, keep writing. Don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>